Welcome to the show, folks. We're currently going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last time, we covered Mary and Joseph's trip to the temple to dedicate their newborn baby to the Lord, as was required by the Old Testament. While they were there, they ran into a couple of people who were expecting them because of their research of the prophecies in the Old Testament. They were real excited about this. Then several months later, possibly a year or so later, Persian Parthian Magi came to Jerusalem in search for the one who was born king of the Jews. This unsettled King Herod because he knew he wasn't born king of the Jews. He was just a Roman pawn who was merely appointed by Rome to keep Israel as a buffer state between Rome and Persia. So the presence of the Persian Parthian Magi was unsettling, especially since the Magi were the ones who decided who would be king in a territory under Persian Parthian control. But it turns out that's not why they were there. The Magi, at least these particular members of the Magi, were remembering what was taught to them by Daniel 600 years ago when King Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel as chief of the Magi after he had accurately interpreted the king's dreams. The Magi made it very clear that they came to worship the newborn king of the Jews. So King Herod called for the religious scholars to do their homework and tell him where the Christ was to be born. And they found Micah chapter 5 verse 2 which told them it was Bethlehem. So the king sent the Magi to Bethlehem to scout him out and bring back a report so that he could have him killed, (coughs) so he could worship him. Excuse me. On their way, something supernatural appeared to them in the sky that looked like a star, which led them to the house where Mary and Joseph lived. When they got there, they fell down on their knees to worship him and gave him all kinds of gifts, including gold, which honored Jesus' royalty, frankincense, which honored Jesus' priesthood, and myrrh, which honored Jesus' future death. Then being warned in a dream, the Magi were told not to report back to Herod, and Joseph was warned in a dream to take his family and flee to Egypt, because Herod's going to find out the Magi tricked him, and he's going to have Jesus killed. So Joseph did just that, and Herod had all the Bethlehem children, two years of age and under, killed. Then finally, Herod died himself. So Joseph and his family left Egypt and returned to their home in Nazareth. Ten years later, while Jesus' family was traveling back from attending the Passover feast in Jerusalem, they noticed that Jesus was missing. So they traveled back to Jerusalem and searched for him all over the place for three days. They finally found him in the temple court holding a deep conversation, probably more like a debate, with the religious leaders there. And everybody who was listening in were stunned because this 12-year-old boy spoke with authority and wisdom like nothing they had ever heard before. When Mary caught up with him and asked him, What are you doing? We've been looking all over the place for you. He said to her, Why? Didn't you know I'd be here about my father's business? So that's where we left off, folks. Fast forward around 18 years. Jesus and his cousin John are now both 30 years of age, and everything's about to hit the fan because John's beginning his ministry to prepare the way for the Lord. This is a big deal. Israel hadn't seen or heard from a prophet in 400 years, not since Malachi. The Jewish priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were the ones who were in charge of representing God to the people. So for a prophet to pop up again after 400 years was a big deal. Now the last written prophecies of Malachi were recorded in Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Both of them deal with the coming of the Messiah. But chapter 3 dealt with his first coming, while chapter 4 dealt with his second coming. The entire Old Testament is full of prophecies dealing with both the first and second coming of the Messiah. But because Malachi was the most recent, certain passages from Malachi were constantly ringing in people's ears. So let's turn over to those chapters in Malachi to get an idea of what was spinning around in people's minds back then. Let's start with the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 
Now remember, folks, what I'm about to read to you was available to the people of Jesus' day for at least 400 years. Chapter 3, verse 1, quote, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear and prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Messiah, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the priests, the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and in former years. So here in Malachi chapter 3, folks, you have recorded this prophecy of the coming Messiah who's coming not to take over the world, not to destroy the wicked or to free Israel from worldly oppression, not to burn up the wicked of the world or banish Satan or take away the curse or establish the eternal kingdom, none of that. He's coming to purify the priesthood, to refine them. It says, suddenly he will appear and do what? Come to his temple. That's where the priests are. And the key event that starts all of this in motion, recorded in the first verse of that prophecy, is the appearing of a messenger that will clear and prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus' cousin John is to fulfill that role. That's what the angel Gabriel told John's father before he was conceived, that he would be the prophet who would go out and prepare the way for the Lord. When Jesus was age 12, he was in the temple debating with priests, Pharisees, and the religious leaders. And when he's grown, before the famous Sermon on the Mount, before all the miracles happen, before anything else, his very first public act is the cleansing of the temple. And all throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus gets into a heated debate or argument with anyone, it's always a priest or a Pharisee or someone of religious leadership. Every single time. You won't find him arguing with anyone else. Malachi chapter 3 foretold this, and it was available to the people of Jesus' day for at least 400 years. But, so was Malachi chapter 4. Let's take a look at it, starting in verse 1. Quote, Behold, the day is coming that shall burn like an oven, and all the proud and arrogant, yes, and every evildoer will be stubble. The day that is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere and worshipfully fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Well, that has a completely different flavor to it, doesn't it? Certainly a lot more exciting than the other prophecy we read. Chapter 3 talks about the Messiah going straight to the temple to refine the priesthood, and the key event that sets it all in motion is the appearing of a messenger that prepares the way. But here in chapter 4, this is universal refining. It calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord, talking about the wicked being reduced to ashes. And the key event that sets that in motion is the appearing of Elijah the prophet. Not someone that's similar to Elijah, but Elijah himself. 
Everything about this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 is just, wow. So it got a lot more attention than the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. John would be the fulfillment of that prophesied messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord according to Malachi chapter 3. But because of Malachi chapter 4, people were waiting for Elijah. So they kept asking him, are you Elijah? And every time they asked him, he'd have to say, no, that's not me. I'm not the guy from Malachi chapter 4. I'm the guy from Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40. Let's look at that one. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says, quote, A voice of one who cries, Prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Clear away the obstacles. Make straight and smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So this is John's ministry, to get everybody stirred up and paying attention, preparing the way. So let's just jump right on in there. Real quick, though, don't get John the Baptist confused with John the Gospel writer. The author of the book of John is not John the Baptist. John the book writer was one of the twelve main followers of Jesus during his ministry, one of the twelve disciples or apostles. And of those twelve, he was probably one of the most intimate with Jesus, besides Peter and James. That John wrote five books for the New Testament, the book of John. Then he wrote three letters during the early church period known in our Bibles as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote the big one, the book of Revelation. John was a common name then, too. So don't confuse that John, which hasn't shown up yet in the narrative, with the one we're talking about here, John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, Zach and Elizabeth's son, who was born six months before Jesus and prophesied by the angel Gabriel to grow up and go out to prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew starts this off in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, think differently, change your mind, regretting your sins and changing your conduct, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, quote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, prepare the road, make his highway straight, level, and direct. This John's garments were made of camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt or girdle about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the country round about the Jordan went out to him, and they were baptized in the Jordan River by him, confessing their sins. Folks, John's title here in the Gospels as John the Baptist simply means he was the one baptizing people. It doesn't mean John was against Methodists. Some folks prefer to call him John the Baptizer to clarify that, but none of those denominations even existed in this time period. There were no Catholics, no Protestants, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans. None of those denominations existed yet. Back then, the two polarizing denominations were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. The word baptized has become a religious term today with a lot of religious meaning, but it's not a religious term. All it means is to submerge. Baptize means submerge. So when it says they were baptized in the Jordan River by John, confessing their sins, it's saying they were submerged in the Jordan River by John, confessing their sins. What's being submerged in the Jordan River got to do with anything? It was symbolic of their sins being washed away, because it was a river. The water was constantly moving. It was living water. We'll find out later in John chapter 4 and other places that Jesus gives us living water. But John is just getting things started here, folks. This is only a baptism of repentance. This ritual of being submerged in water gets picked up again later after Jesus' resurrection and during the book of Acts, and a lot more meaning gets applied to the symbolism at that point. Not only does the water symbolize the washing away of our sins, but the lowering into the water represents the death of our mortal body, while the raising out of the water represents our resurrection into immortality, or our rebirth. 
but it's just symbolic. There's nothing supernatural taking place there. It's just symbolic. That's one of the greater tragedies of modern Christianity is that more and more Christians today imprison themselves in religious ritualism and they know more about their church traditions and rituals than they know the God of the Bible. A lot of people get all hung up on rituals and always forget that these rituals only symbolize a greater reality that is completely independent of that symbolic ritual. The water doesn't cleanse anything. It symbolizes the cleansing that Jesus does. And it's the cleansing that Jesus does that really counts. And that happens independently of water baptism. John himself, John the Baptist, will make that very point here in a minute. Mark's version of this is in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 6. It says, Just as it's written by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, shouting in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his beaten tracks straight, level, and passable. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism obligating repentance. That is, the change of one's mind for the better, in order to obtain forgiveness and release of one's sins. All of the country of Judea and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were continuously going out to him and were baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leather belt or girdle about his loins, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, folks, the locusts and wild honey thing always made my nose wrinkle up as a kid for obvious reasons. We don't think of bugs as something that's very appetizing. But it's not all that different from some of the weird stuff we eat today. Back then, locusts were a common snack, kind of like dried shrimp. Some people today eat crawfish, and all that is is a giant bug. But it turns out that here, where it says locusts and wild honey, there's a possibility that this may not be talking about the bug. This might be talking about the carapods of the locust tree. It was a fruit. They've got what they called locust trees over there that grew these pods, and the pulp of those pods was real sweet. Here in America, they're so sweet that today we call those trees the honey locust. So while John may have been eating dried up locusts with honey, because it was a common thing back then, it might just be talking about the carob pods of the locust tree. But there's no way to know for sure. Luke, the investigative reporter, records his version of this in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, and in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. <laughs> Didn't I tell you Luke was the investigator? You know, it's really neat when you read these four accounts the style of each one. You know, Mark was Peter's secretary. So Mark is the shortest version of the four. It's quick. It is fastly paced. It's like an action movie. I mean, it's just, this happened and that happened. It's typical of Peter. Matthew's very Jewish, so it had a Jewish feel to it. John is very spiritual because he's writing to the church. And uh, Luke wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness. This is all the result of strenuous research and investigation. So, it's really neat. When you read his, it sounds just like the narrative to a documentary. I mean, you feel like you're watching PBS. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, and in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country round about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance, of amending of their ways with abhorrence for past wrongdoing, unto the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, shouting in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his beaten paths straight. Every valley and ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be leveled down, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough road shall be made smooth. And all mankind shall see, behold, and understand, and acknowledge the salvation of God, the deliverance from eternal death decreed by God. Leave it to investigative reporter Luke to go all the way, giving the time period, who ruled over what, and then even quoted the entire prophecy from Isaiah that John the Baptist used as his authority. Now, John the Gospel writer's version skips with the introduction of John the Baptist's ministry because he already introduced John the Baptist in the preface of his book. And you kind of get the feel that John the Gospel writer felt that the background of John baptizing people in the Jordan River was common knowledge. So he just jumps right in with the first dispute between John the Baptist and the religious leaders. And this is in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. And it says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He didn't try to conceal the truth, but acknowledged, I am not the Christ, he said. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Then they asked, Are you that prophet? And he answered, No. See, folks, John was creating an uproar in religious circles. There hadn't been a prophet since Malachi 400 years ago. And since then, God was supposed to be represented to the people by the priesthood. And the attention that's supposed to be going to the priests is now going to John. So the priesthood is trying to figure out why. Now they remembered the prophecy of Elijah's return in Malachi chapter 4, but then they asked him, are you that prophet? Because they weren't certain about how to interpret that last prophecy in Malachi because of the way it's worded where God said, Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. They wondered if it meant God would literally send the prophet Elijah himself or a prophet with similarities alluding to Elijah. So they're basically asking him the same question twice. Are you the one talked about in Malachi 4 verse 5? And we're going to find out in Matthew's account of this conversation the people who were asking these questions were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees took the scriptures literally, and the Sadducees took them liberally. So it was probably the Pharisees who asked, Are you Elijah? And the Sadducees who asked, Are you that prophet? They basically asked him the same question twice. Are you the one talked about in Malachi 4 verse 5? And to both questions, John answered no. Then they said to him, Well, who are you? Tell us, so that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one crying aloud in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor that prophet? John answered them, I only baptize in water. Among you there stands one whom you do not recognize, and are not acquainted with, and of whom you know nothing. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, the string of whose sandal I am not worthy to unloose. These things occurred in Bethany, also known as Bethbara, at the Jordan crossing where John was then baptizing. 
Now, Matthew's version adds a little extra information about the exchange between John the Baptist and the religious leaders that John chapter 1 left out. It's a lot more heated, a lot more passionate, and Matthew also includes the denominational identity of these religious leaders. John chapter 1 just said that the Jews sent priests and Levites, and then towards the end, John quietly slips in that these priests and Levites were sent from the Pharisees. But Matthew goes all the way and identifies the visitors as Pharisees and Sadducees. Just like today, you had denominational divisions of the truth back then. The word Pharisee actually means separatist. The Pharisees saw themselves as separate from all of the other denominations out there because they thought they were the only ones who followed the scriptures accurately. They were the legalists, the ritualists the very bastion of religious tradition and religious ritualism. Very hard-nosed, very cold, and very judgmental. I'm sure a lot of you can think of denominations today that fit that description nicely. The thing about the Pharisees was you couldn't win a theological debate with a Pharisee because they knew the scriptures backward and forward, and they knew precisely how to use it or misuse it or twist it. Now, of course, they didn't see it as twisting the scriptures, but most overzealous and legalist religious groups can't. Their arrogance keeps them blind. They feel no guilt when twisting the scriptures. For example, there's a blessing and a curse found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God gave a promise to Abraham about him and his descendants. God said, quote, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, the Pharisees loved that verse, and they brought it up constantly. If the debate wasn't going their way, they'd say, I'm a son of Abraham. I can link my bloodline directly to Abraham. I am of the children of Abraham. Abraham is my father. So if you were winning a debate with a Pharisee, you'd be reminded of Genesis 12, verse 3, and suddenly you'd lose your passion and kind of back down. But not John the Baptist. Well, you hear how he handles the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the opposite side of the spectrum. They were the denomination that picked out the parts that they liked and ignored the parts that upset their liberal ideologies. They were the group that said you didn't have to believe all of the scriptures because it was only written by man. They denied God's role in the creation of the scriptures. They didn't believe in immortality. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of the prophecies. I'm sure a lot of you can think of denominations today that fit that description nicely. One way to help remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is a very lame pun that I heard from Chuck Missler. It was the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. First time I heard that, I moaned. But it works. I've always remembered that, and that was the whole point of that lame joke. Not to get a laugh, but to help you remember so both the hardcore legalists, the Pharisees, and the softcore liberals, the Sadducees, come to John to question who he is and what does he think he's doing. But unlike John chapter 1, Matthew goes further and points out that they came posing as repentant sinners to be baptized. So this is where the extra heat comes from in Matthew's account of this. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee and escape from the wrath and indignation of God against disobedience that's coming? Bring forth fruit that is consistent with repentance. Let your lives prove your change of heart. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham, our forefather. For I tell you, God is able to raise up descendants of Abraham from these stones. 
Already the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you in water because of repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy or even fit to take off or carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear out and clean his threshing floor, and will gather and store his wheat in his barn. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that cannot be put out. John the Baptist is pretty fired up here, folks. When he calls the Pharisees and Sadducees brood of vipers, the King James says generation of vipers, but John's using an idiom that's a reference to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent. He's calling them sons of Satan. The religious leaders, he's calling them sons of Satan. Now, there's been a lot of confusion about some of the other things he said. He said, quote, Already the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You kind of get the feel from the context of that statement that John's basically saying, bear good fruit or die and be cast into hell. But that's not what he's saying. Every time the word tree shows up in the scripture, you'll notice that trees are always being associated with the production of fruit. From the tree in the Garden of Eden to the tree of life in Revelation. We'll hear later in the Gospels that a tree is always known by its fruit. How do you know if an apple tree is an apple tree? If there's apples growing in it. If an apple tree has a couple of branches in it without apples, then those branches get cut off and new branches grow in their place and produce apples. If an entire apple tree is without apples, then the whole tree gets chopped down. Why? The answer is in Job chapter 14, where it says, There is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender shoots of it will not cease. Through the breathing of water, the stump of the tree will bud and bring forth boughs like a young plant. John the Baptist starts off his little rant by telling them to bring forth fruit that is consistent with repentance. But because there's absolutely zero repentance coming from the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's letting them know just how much fruit they're known for by saying that in their case, the axe is already lying at the root of the trees. John's statement isn't a threat, it's an accusation. John then says, I baptize in water, but there is one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. John's way ahead of the game here. Jesus hasn't even publicly shown up yet, but John's already promoting the doctrine of being reborn in the Holy Spirit. John's saying, hey, I'm just getting things started. I'm baptizing in water, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. But then he says, and in fire. What does that mean? A lot of theories and assumptions as to what that part of John's statement means. But there shouldn't be. All throughout the Bible, fire always represents God's judgment. Always. In earlier sessions, we talked about how God is perfect in his justice. It's part of his nature. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. He doesn't have a choice. It's not about anger. It's not about revenge. It's about justice. And that's something that God can't help. He's perfect in his justice. So all of us, every human being on the planet, has an appointment with God's judgment. All of us. But God's also perfect in his love. And that's what Jesus Christ is all about. After Jesus is dead and buried for three days and then resurrected and leaves the planet Earth, he sends in his place the Holy Spirit. Those of us who choose to accept the Lamb of God as a sacrifice for our sins are then baptized and sealed in the Holy Spirit 
according to Ephesians 1.13. So we're separated from the fire of God's judgment. In our case, the fire of God's judgment rests on the Lamb of God, so it won't rest on us. But even if we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we still have to temporarily coexist with those who aren't. And John points out by using farmer's idioms here that God will thoroughly clear out and clean his threshing floor and will gather and store his wheat in his barn. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that cannot be put out. During the harvest, they would drag up everything they gathered onto what they called the threshing floor. The wheat and the grain was what they wanted to keep, but it was mixed up with all the chaff, which was the dust and the dirt and the junk. The wheat was heavier than the chaff, so they would take it all to the threshing floor, which was an open space where the wind could blow. They'd take what they called winnowing forks, or winnowing shovels, and they would thrash it all up in the air. The wheat, or the grain, would fall straight down, while the chaff would blow away into a separate pile nearby. Then they'd take up the grain, or the wheat, and they would store it in barns, and then they'd go out and burn up all the chaff. This was familiar to everyone's minds of that day, so John's using it all here for imagery. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear out and clean his threshing floor, and will gather and store his wheat in his barn. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that cannot be put out. So the threshing floor is idiomatic of the judgment seat. If you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you'll be gathered and stored in God's kingdom. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you'll be baptized in fire, a fire that cannot be put out. Now, a lot of people have a hard time believing in a God of love because of this. They think God is saying, if you don't do it my way, then I'm sending you to hell. Well, that's not really what God is saying. That's not what's going on, folks. The eternal fires of hell were not made for human beings. Hell is a future prison for Satan and his angels. But because of what Satan started in the Garden of Eden, every human being on the planet is destined to go there. Not because God sends us there, but because our imperfection, our genetically inherited nature, the sin, prevents us from going to heaven. So hell is our destiny by default. And then somebody might ask, well then why didn't God do something to fix that? Well he did. That's what the cross is all about. When I hear people judge God as being heartless because of the plan of salvation, it makes me imagine a conversation between a good fireman and a stubborn idiot who won't get out of the burning building, a building that's full of people, and because of all the damage the fire has caused, there's no way out, none. Everybody inside is doomed. But then a brave fireman busts a huge hole in the outer wall and screams, This way! And then some people stand at the hole from the inside of the burning building and say to the fireman, What if I don't want to? Well, then you'll burn up if you don't. This is the only way out. Well, why can't there be another way out? Look, if I could have made another way out, trust me, I would have. Trust me, this is the only way out. If you don't come out this way, you're doomed. Well, you sure are a judgmental fireman. You don't care about me. What about all the people in the burning building who don't know about this way out? Don't you worry about them. I'll go in to get them. Right now I'm worried about you. Come on, this way. Well... I'm just not ready to commit. Commit to what? I'm the fireman. I'm the one who has to keep going back in there and fight the fires to bring people out. Well, if you really cared about all those people, you'd just make another way out. What's wrong with this way? All you have to do is just walk through it like this. Look, see? Well, I've seen other people escape through that hole in the wall, and I don't want to be anything like them. They're a bunch of hypocrites. 
Yeah, yeah, some of them are. You're right. I've got an idea. Why don't you escape through this hole that I just made, then choose not to be like all those other hypocrites? Well, like I said, I'm just not ready to commit. Commit to what? Well, I don't want to commit to you. I just don't think you're a good fireman. I think there's another way out of here that you're not telling me about, and I'm going to find it. Fine, you do that. Meanwhile, I'm going in to rescue others who actually want to get out of here alive. That's what a good fireman does, folks. Not only does he create a way of escape, but then he goes into the burning building and leads people out. Because not everybody knows the way out. Jesus knows that. He's aware of that. He's not going to let people suffer and burn in that burning building just because they were suffering from smoke inhalation and confused. He's going in there to get them out of there. We'll find out when we get to Luke chapter 19 that it says Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. That covers everyone. The good fireman will somehow get to every person in that burning building. He provided the way of escape, and in his own way, he seeks people out to rescue them, to lead them out. Jesus is that good fireman. He has the scars to prove it. The only people who don't make it out of the burning building are those who choose to stay there because of their own arrogance and pride. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear out and clean his threshing floor, and will gather and store his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that cannot be put out. For those of you who like to collect rapture verses, scripture that either directly or subtly alludes to the rapture of the church, this might be one of them. He will gather and store his wheat in his barn? Really? Why gather and store? Could it be so that they won't be harmed while the chaff is being burned during the Great Tribulation? Second Peter mentions that the world was destroyed before by a flood. It was destroyed by water. But now it's reserved for fire. It's reserved for a future judgment. This is in Second Peter. Interesting. Something else I couldn't help but bring up. There's only two piles mentioned here. A pile for the wheat which gets stored and a pile for the chaff which gets burned. The wheat isn't divided into separate piles. There isn't Baptist wheat. There isn't Catholic wheat or Pentecostal wheat. There isn't the Sunday morning churchgoers wheat. There isn't the speaking in tongues wheat. It's just wheat. You're either wheat or you're chaff. You're either baptized in the Holy Spirit or you're not. Period. But anyway, John the Baptist manages to call the religious leaders sons of Satan, accuses them of being fruitless, and then warns them of coming judgment all in one breath. He was quite a guy. Now, Mark's version of all of this is short and sweet. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says, John the Baptist preached, saying, After me comes he who is stronger, more powerful, and more valiant than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy or fit to stoop down and unloose. I have baptized you in water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke's version of all this omits the identities of those that John called brood of vipers and instead just calls them the crowd. Luke didn't want to get hung up with the exchange between John and the religious leaders. So instead, he focused on what John the Baptist was trying to communicate. This is in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. So John said to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, You offspring of vipers, who secretly warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits that are deserving and consistent with your repentance. Show conduct that is worthy of a heart changed and abhorring sin. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones descendants for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, so that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And the multitudes asked him, then what shall we do? 
And he replied to them, He who has two tunics or undergarments, let him share with him who has none. He who has food, let him do the same way. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Exact and collect no more than the fixed amount that's appointed to you. Those serving as soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he replied, Never demand or enforce by terrifying people or by accusing falsely, and be satisfied with your rations and wages. As the people were in suspense and waiting expectantly, and everybody reasoned and questioned in their hearts concerning John whether or not he might perhaps be the Christ. John answered them all by saying, I baptize you in water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not fit to unfasten. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. His winnowing shovel fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear and cleanse his threshing floor and to gather the wheat and store in his granary. But the chaff he will burn with fire that cannot be extinguished. So with many other various appeals and admonitions, John the Baptist preached the good news of the gospel to the people. Now Luke goes ahead, and he kind of gets ahead of himself. He jumps ahead here in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been repeatedly told his fault by John for having Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the other wicked things that Herod had done, to this he added to them all, he shut up John in prison. Now this doesn't happen for some time, folks, but Luke went ahead and brought that up here just to give the reader an idea of what kind of guy this John the Baptist was. He was gutsy. He'd say anything to make up a point. I mean, he'd reprove anyone. He wasn't scared of anybody. The religious leaders didn't scare him. The tax collectors didn't scare him. The soldiers didn't scare him. And even the king didn't scare him. This is corroborated in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. The king was having sex with his own brother's wife. And John's out in the wilderness exposing him and screaming, It's not lawful or right for you to have her. So this is John the Baptist, the one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. But then, one day, Jesus himself showed up to one of John's rallies. Let's first look at John the Gospel writer's version of this event. It's in John chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has priority over me, who takes rank above me, because he was before me and existed before I did. And I didn't know him. I didn't recognize him myself. But it's in order that he should be made manifest and be revealed to Israel and be brought out where we can all see him that I came baptizing in water. So now, Jesus shows up to one of John's rallies. And John points him out. Hey, here he is. But it's interesting that John says he existed before I did. That's a bold thing to say, since John was actually born six months earlier than Jesus. So what does he mean by that? You know, it's interesting to me how many people have the audacity to say that the Bible never claims Jesus was God. It's obvious they've never read it. This is just one little tiny example of many that will run across either here in the text or quotes from people in the text from both good guys and bad guys who will elude to Jesus' pre-existence before he was human. John also points out that it's not his baptizing in water that takes away the sins of the world. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said it. I didn't. Matthew's version of this is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John protested strenuously, having in mind to prevent him, saying, it's I who have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied to him, Permit it just now. 
For this is the fitting way for both of us to fulfill all righteousness, that is, to perform completely all that is right. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up at once out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting on him. And lo, a voice out from heaven said, This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I delight. This entire event, folks, is really weird. John was baptizing people who were repenting of their sins. But what does Jesus have to repent of? That's why John himself is taken back by this. And Jesus didn't repent of any sin. He didn't say, well, there was this one time back when I was 13. He didn't repent of anything. He couldn't. There was nothing to repent of. Jesus was sinless. He didn't inherit the nature of sin because the sin nature is genetically passed on through the male. The Bible says that it's through Adam that all have sinned. But Jesus was born of a virgin. His father was God himself. He didn't inherit the sin nature. So what's this all about? And when John asks him that very same question in not so many words, Jesus said to him, Permit it just now. For this is the fitting way for both of us to perform completely all that's right. But if Jesus is sinless, then what makes this right? The answer is in Isaiah 53 verse 12. In that verse, God himself is doing the talking, and he's talking about what he's going to give to his son, Jesus Christ, after the Antichrist is defeated, after Satan's in chains, and after the curse has been removed from the planet, and so on and so forth. Isaiah 53, verse 12, quote, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the mighty, because he poured out his life unto death, and he let himself be regarded as a criminal and be numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now folks, most of the time we hear that verse from Isaiah get quoted whenever we're reading through the passages that cover the crucifixion, because there were two thieves who were hanging on their own crosses next to Jesus during his crucifixion. So Jesus did let himself be regarded as a criminal. But read the fine print here in Isaiah. It says he also allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore and took away the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors that Jesus today makes intercession for? Us. We are the transgressors that Jesus allowed himself to be numbered with. We are the transgressors that Jesus makes intercession for. He went to John the Baptist to be baptized, not because he had sin to repent of, because he chose to allow himself to be numbered with the transgressors who were there to confess sin and repent. He's one of us. He chose to be one of us before any of us were ever created. Ephesians 1 verse 4 points that out. John chapter 1 points out that he was the flawless and timeless creator of the universe. And he chose to become one of us. He chose not just to look human or appear in human form while he was here, he actually became a human being. He spent nine months in a womb. He crawled around on the floor like babies do. He grew up into a little boy, then became a teenager, then a young man. And now, he's allowing himself to be numbered with the transgressors and being baptized. Mark's version of this is in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, at once John saw the heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, coming down into him. And there came a voice out from within heaven that said, 
You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Jesus officially begins his ministry, folks, by identifying himself as one of us through a baptism of repentance, even though he's sinless. He's publicly announcing with this baptism his willingness to take upon the sin of the world. And it's such a big deal that all three members of the Trinity publicly take part in this. First you have Jesus, who's being baptized. Then you have the Holy Spirit, who comes down like a dove. And then the voice of the Father from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And on one little side note, there's a lot of paintings that like to show a little white dove resting on Jesus' shoulder while standing in the Jordan River. But in all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it says that the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Not as a dove or in the form of a dove, but it came down like a dove. So we don't really know what this looked like. If you've seen how doves fly when they're landing on something, try to imagine that same kind of movement and feel, but it being something else. We don't know what it was or what it looked like. All we do know is that it was the Holy Spirit and that John the Baptist recognized it and saw it, and all four accounts recorded it. Luke's version of this is in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, and while he was still praying, the visible heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, the Beloved, in you I am well pleased and find delight. You know, in the book of Hebrews, Paul uses this event to put to rest all of the angel worship that was going on back then. A lot of people, even today, unfortunately, worship angels. You can go to the bookstore and find all kinds of stupid books talking about how to contact your guardian angel, how to have a better life by constantly keeping yourself in the presence of angels. People buy these books and spend all of their time reading them and trying to talk to angels instead of just reading the Bible and talking to Jesus Christ. So for all the angel worshippers that are out there, Paul has a question for you in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? You know? Hey, what are you doing? Why don't you get in contact with the one who created the angels instead? Because the angels will listen to him before they'll ever listen to you. Except for the fallen angels, and you don't want them around. That's why mediums have never known a house that wasn't haunted, folks. They'll travel 400 miles to investigate a house somewhere, and they're rarely disappointed. What they don't know is that the voices that they're hearing are coming from fallen angels that they picked up during their very first seance and have been following them around from house to house ever since. So no matter where Madame Tangina goes, she's going to hear voices and sense a presence. One day, if she ever attempts to tune into the spirit world while she's using the bathroom or eating a burger at Sonic, she's in for a big surprise, but I'm getting off topic. Now... After Jesus' baptism in Luke, we have a genealogy of Jesus recorded in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, in which Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the first man. Luke was a doctor, and he was fascinated with Jesus' humanity. Matthew focused on his Jewish readers, so he recorded a genealogy taking him back to Abraham. Both genealogies are a little different and have some very surprising supernatural results in the text itself. And we covered that already in session one since Matthew included his genealogy in his introduction. So if you're interested in that, go check it out, session one. But uh, for here, we're going to move on. John's version of Jesus' anointment as the Son of God by the Holy Spirit and God the Father is recorded in John chapter one, verses 32 to 34. 
It says, John gave further evidence, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending like a dove out of heaven, and it dwelt on him not to depart. And I didn't know him or recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descend and remain, that one is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen that happen. I actually did see it. And my testimony is that this is the Son of God. Now what followed Jesus' baptism is probably one of the strangest portions of Scripture. Jesus, the creator of all things, including the angels, being tempted in the desert by Satan. Mark's version of this is short and sweet. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 says, Immediately the Holy Spirit from within drove him out into the desert wilderness. And he stayed in the desert wilderness for forty days, being tempted the whole while by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. That's Mark's short and sweet version of the story. John doesn't say anything about it. But Matthew and Luke give us more detail. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 says, Then Jesus was led, or guided, by the Holy Spirit into the desert wilderness to be tempted, that is, to be tested and tried by the devil. And he went without food for forty days and nights, and later he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are God's son, command these stones to be made loaves of bread. But Jesus replied, It has been written, Man shall not live and be upheld or sustained by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Now folks, don't make light of the word hungry there. After no food for forty days, we're talking knocking on death's door. He was physically and medically in desperate need of food. And then it says the tempter came. At this point, let me just go through a real quick run-through as sort of an introduction to Satan since we're doing the Gospels, the centerpiece of the Bible. And I'm afraid with some of this, I'm going to have to do it without biblical references because I don't, want to, I don't want to get hung up on this. I don't want this to sidetrack us too much. I want to keep up with the story here. But Satan is the current official name given by God to the archangel Lucifer who led a rebellion against God. The word Satan literally means adversary, to lie in wait as an adversary. A third of the angels in heaven joined him as he led a rebellion against God. Of course he lost. God kicked Satan and his angels out of heaven and trapped them inside our physical universe. It happened before the creation scenario of Genesis chapter 1. Now, there's some debate about whether or not it might have happened between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1, but that's not important for this discussion. Human beings were then created. Satan, in the form of a serpent, fooled the first woman, Eve, into disobeying God, and Adam followed. And it was at that precise moment in our universe that the nature of sin entered into the human DNA. The fourth dimension, known as time, was cracked, which started what we know today as linear time. That's when the aging process started. That's when death started. Because that is when the law of entropy began, which states that all things go from order to disorder. The dimensional rift is what is known biblically as the curse. And most importantly, it separated humanity from God in the physical sense. Because as we talked about earlier, God is perfect in every way to the extent that our being in his physical presence would be deadly to us. It would kill us. He wouldn't kill us, but our imperfect bodies being in the presence of his radiant perfection would burn us up. That's why we can't physically be in God's presence. 
We could spend a whole hour talking about that. But it was at this time that God himself announced his whole game plan. He announced a coming redeemer for mankind who would be human. He's called in Genesis the seed of the woman, which alludes to the virgin birth. A coming redeemer who would eventually crush the head of the seed of the serpent, which is a title of the Antichrist. Now the bad news for Satan there is that he knows God exists outside time, which means he knows the end from the beginning. So this isn't an idle threat. From God's perspective, it's already happened. Second of all, Satan knows that God can't lie. So God isn't saber-rattling. He means it. So what's been going on for the past 6,000 years is Satan running from that declaration and trying to slow it down. He knows he can't stop it. But since he doesn't know when it is, he thinks he can slow it down. We talked about that in previous sessions. The Bible gives us many insights into the style, the nature, and habitual attitude of Satan for our own protection. Satan's obsession, since he knows he's already lost, is to cause and create as much emotional pain for God as he can before his time is over. The Easton's Bible Dictionary gives us a nice little summary of Satan's resume from the Bible. He's called the dragon, the old serpent, in Revelation chapter 12. He's called the prince of this world in John chapter 12. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. The god of this world in 2 Corinthians. And the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians 2. The distinct personality of Satan and his activity among men are thus obviously recognized. He tempted our Lord in the wilderness. That's what we're going through right now. He is Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, in Matthew chapter 12. He is the constant enemy of God and of Christ and of the divine kingdom and of the followers of Christ and of all truth. He's full of falsehood and all malice and excites and seduces to evil in every possible way. His power is very great in the world. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter chapter 5. Men are said to be taken captive by him in 2 Timothy. Christians are warned against his devices in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and called on to resist him in James chapter 4. And it is Christ who redeems his people from him that had the power of death, that is the devil, according to Hebrews chapter 2. Satan has the power of death, not as Lord, but simply as executioner. He isn't just a metaphor for evil, he is a living entity. He's a fallen angel. People always ask, if God is good, then why does he allow suffering? And when we get the usual cliched answer about God giving us free will or God having a reason that we can't understand, stuff like that already falls on deaf ears because it sounds like a cop-out. doesn't bring much comfort. Until you realize that God himself suffers with us. And I don't mean in just a sympathetic way. We often think of God as being separated from our suffering because he's God up there and we're just humans down here having to put up with all the hell. But that's not the case. There are several passages of scripture that allude to the fact that God himself emotionally and physically feels all of our suffering and burdens. So if God endures that suffering as we endure it, then there has to be a reason. Before we finish the gospel story, we'll discover that Jesus himself suffered in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And he even prayed to get out of it just before he allowed himself to be arrested. He prayed to the Father three times while he sweat blood, that if there be any other way than the cross to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish, let's take that route, please. But if not, your will be done. 
What's fascinating, folks, about that part of the story, and we'll dig into that a little deeper when we get there, is that Jesus himself heard himself say that prayer before he volunteered to come down here before the creation. Because remember from John chapter 1, in the beginning before all time was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. Before Jesus was human, he created the angels, including Lucifer and the angels that fell. And then Jesus created the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, knowing what was going to happen, knowing that it would mean a trip to the cross. So there's a whole lot going on outside our space-time domain that will never make any rational sense to us because we're trapped inside. God giving us free will does have a lot to do with it. Suffering would be gone in the blink of an eye if the entire world came together in the name of Jesus Christ to fight Satan instead of fighting God and each other. The main reason why I think there's so much suffering is because Satan knows he's lost. He's only got so much time left. And he doesn't know how much time that is. But that time is set in stone. There is a specific date when all of this will be over with. And it's coming, and Satan knows it. And since he can't win against God, instead of surrendering, he's made it his mission to cause as much emotional pain to God as possible before that time is up. How does Satan cause God emotional pain? By hurting those who God loves. Or by deceiving those whom God loves into believing things about God that aren't true. Therefore, hindering a relationship. Hindering an accurate perception of who God is, and as a result, their own reality. One of the biggest deceptions that modern Christianity is fond of teaching is that if you love God, read the Bible, and behave like a good little Christian, then everything you want out of life will turn out just perfect. But then when all hell breaks loose, Christians wonder what in the world's going on. If you choose to identify yourself as one of God's and attempt to be serious about it, understand that there is a supernatural nuclear war going on. And even though you've chosen to be on the winning side, the enemy hasn't surrendered yet. And you're still living under his occupied territory. This is why the innocent suffers, why good people go through hell, why the corrupt and the unjust continue to advance, while the righteous just never seem to get ahead. We're living in a war zone in which the losing side is still in control and is throwing everything but the kitchen sink at all that is good. A war zone is not an ideal place to live, and yet so many of us forget about that war and try to build normal lives in the midst of it, and then wonder why we suffer when we get creamed with a scud missile. We live under a satanic occupation. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that Satan is presently the god of this world. But, the good news is, the satanic occupation isn't permanent. At Jesus' second coming, he will take back what he purchased. It's at his first coming that Jesus is making the purchase. That's what the cross is all about, and that's what Satan is trying to slow down with these temptations in the desert. See, I got distracted and was still able to bring us back to where we are. Okay. You know, so much of this is so familiar to us as Christians that it almost seems like a fairy tale. But this event, Jesus being tempted in the desert, it actually happened. It really happened. Jesus the human literally spent 40 days wandering around in the desert. We don't know much about how that happened, with the exception of the Bible's cryptic explanation, where it says he was led or guided by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he knew his ministry was beginning, 
and he knew about everything that was coming. So I'm sure he felt compelled to get away from everything and spend some serious alone time with God the Father. And after 40 days in the desert with no food, Satan shows up. And the Bible doesn't tell us if he materialized in front of him in human form, as most angels do, or if Satan remained invisible while communicating to his mind. We don't know. Either one of those scenarios is possible, but this is a true story. This really happened. Luke's version of this first temptation is in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. It says, Then Jesus, full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Holy Spirit for forty days in the desert wilderness, where he was tempted, tried, and tested exceedingly by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were completed, he was hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, order this stone to turn into a loaf of bread. Well, that's typical of satanic communication in that one statement lies a false accusation and two temptations. Satan knows full well that he's the Son of God, and he knows that Jesus knows he's the Son of God, but that statement implies doubt and demands proof. So Jesus' human pride is being tempted here. You know, if you are the Son of God, it should be easy to prove. Wouldn't you just love to put me, Satan, in my place? And the second temptation is satisfying a physical need. Jesus is 40 days hungry. It's perfectly normal for him to want food. And he's got the power to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. And there wouldn't have been anything wrong with Jesus feeding himself or using his supernatural power to feed himself. But Jesus knows that he's in this situation for a reason. He knew he went into the desert to be tempted. And he knows if the Father wants him to be fed, he'll be fed. And Satan's timing is also typical. Compare this scenario to things that may have happened in your life. To the best of your knowledge, you're doing exactly what you thought God wanted you to do. And even to make sure, you never closed your mind off to God's correction. You bathed it in prayer. You stayed buried in the Bible. And everything's falling apart. And just when you think things can't possibly get any worse, Satan shows up and starts asking you questions. Questions that deny what you know to be true. Questions that demand an active response on your part to put those questions to rest. And no matter how badly you may want to take that action, and no matter how innocent or legitimate that action might be, you begin to wonder if the action alone won't cancel out the whole point of answering the question to begin with. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, order this stone to turn into a loaf of bread. And Jesus replied to him, It is written, Man shall not live and be sustained by bread alone. That's how Luke leaves it. Matthew records Jesus saying, It is written that man shall not live or be sustained by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, folks. And of course, you take the word bread and fill in the blank. Man shall not live and be sustained by his paycheck alone, or his career alone, or his hobbies alone, or his entertainment alone, or his relationships, whatever. Fill in the blank. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's interesting that Jesus' very first response to Satan sets up how he will continue to respond to Satan with each coming temptation. Jesus is declaring that he is living and being sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So from here on out, Jesus always responds with Scripture. He doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't insult him. He doesn't debate with him. We're going to see here that with each temptation, all three times, Jesus quotes Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 tells us that that's exactly how you fight Satan. Ephesians chapter 6 lays out what it calls the armor of God, and it gives us five pieces of armor for defense. And one piece of armor 
is for offense, and it calls it the sword, which is the Word of God. We read that today and think, well, isn't that quaint? That's not very tough to fight off Satan by quoting Scripture. Yeah, right, that's going to work. Hey, Jesus was face-to-face with Satan himself, and that's exactly what he did every time. In case you're following along, you'll notice that the last two of these temptations are laid out in different order between Matthew and Luke. John didn't record these temptations at all. Mark just made a quick little statement about it without detail. But Matthew and Luke chose to get into the nitty-gritty details. But for some reason, the last two temptations are switched around between Matthew and Luke. Nobody really knows why. There's only theory. Some think Luke's order is chronologically accurate, while Matthew's version is laid out in order of significance from a Jewish perspective. Others think Matthew's order is chronologically accurate, while Luke's version is laid out in order of moral significance. Nobody really knows, and I really don't care. This is one of those things that some people get all worked up about, and I really don't get it. I don't know why, but I just wanted to point it out to you in case you're following along. I'm going to use the order that's laid out in Matthew and then compare it to the relative passages in Luke. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, this is the next temptation. Then the devil took him into the holy city and placed him on a turret or pinnacle or gable of the temple sanctuary. And Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, and they will bear you up on their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is also written, You shall not tempt, test, or try the Lord your God. Okay, it says the devil took him into the holy city and placed him on a turret. This is obviously a super physical or transdimensional form of transportation, folks. We have no idea what this means. To use today's sci-fi lingo, I guess you could say Satan transported or beamed himself and Jesus into the holy city. And Jesus materialized on a turret, pinnacle of the temple sanctuary. Jesus is really wore out at this point. And Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels charge over you and they will bear you up on their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. So I think it's interesting now Satan is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 and 12. Satan knows the scriptures better than most, if not all, Christians. Some of the most powerful forces of darkness on this earth are wolves in sheep's clothing who know the Bible backwards and forwards. That's why if you're serious about getting into all of this, folks, if you're a Christian and want to build your life around the teachings of the Bible, it is very wise not to do it haphazardly. You know, a couple of verses here and there, that's not going to cut it. Because Satan loves to quote scripture to Christians. He does it all the time. And he always does it to promote something that's completely anti-biblical. But you'll feel good about it because of the Bible verse that Satan gave you. Let me give you an example. One of the Bible verses that Satan loves to quote, I hear it all the time to give Christians a guilt trip. And that's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. If you're caught drinking a margarita at a Mexican restaurant or fill in the blank, somebody might lay a guilt trip on you with Romans chapter 12, verse 2. God said, do not be conformed to this world. So you hang your head down in shame and start thinking about all of the things you're going to have to give up so that you're not conformed to this world anymore. So you sit down and you make a list, what's worldly versus what's godly. And if you know any Pharisees or their modern-day equivalent, they'll be more than happy to help you make out that list. But there's a problem with that. If you read Romans chapter 12, verse 2, all the way through, it does say, do not be conformed to this world, but in the same verse, it then tells you how. And writing a list isn't in there. 
The full verse says, quote, Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is. If you're following a list of do's and don'ts, your mind isn't being renewed. You're living under guilt and fear. When you look both ways before you cross the street, is it because your parents taught you when you were a kid and you're afraid of disappointing your parents? Or is it because your mind knows how to cross the street without getting killed? Satan loves to quote scripture. Be ready for it. It happens all the time. Luke's version of this is in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. It reads, Then he, Satan, took Jesus into Jerusalem and set him on a gable of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it's written, He will give his angels charge over you, to guard and watch over you closely and carefully. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replied to him, It is also said, You shall not tempt or try the Lord your God. All right now, folks, let's look at this last temptation. This last temptation has got a lot of advanced technology involved, a lot going on here, so let's look at this slowly and talk about what's going on. It's really weird on multiple levels. Let's look at it from Luke first. Luke 4, verse 5 says, Then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the habitable world in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye. Matthew's version says the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory, the splendor, the magnificence, the preeminence, and the excellence of them. Luke's account, it says Satan did this in the twinkling of an eye, and I don't think that that is figurative language. This is something that's highly advanced communication. Whether, again, this is something Jesus received mentally, or if there was some holographic projection, I don't know. But because of that twinkling of an eye statement, this may have been, for lack of a better word, telepathy. I don't like using that word because the New Agers love it. But whether it was mind-to-mind communication or holographic projection, who knows? They could have actually transported to all the kingdoms of the world. Maybe they phased in and out quickly before each kingdom, one at a time, in brief moments. And since Jesus and Satan are obviously inside a hyperspace, their sensual perception of what they're seeing is maintained differently. For example, if you're watching a DVD and a quick scene flashes by, you might have to take it back and hit the pause button and watch it frame by frame to get a better grasp of what flashed by. But if you were in a hyperspace, you wouldn't have to do that. But both Matthew and Luke point out that Jesus was taken up high. So this might have been a single holographic panorama of all the kingdoms of the earth. I have no idea how this happened. This is technology of a super angel at work in these verses. But the point is clear. Jesus is being shown all of the kingdoms of the earth in all their glory and splendor. I wonder if that was all the kingdoms in existence at that time period, or if that included all of the kingdoms of the earth of all human history. We don't know. Luke records in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, And Satan said to him, To you I will give all this power and authority and their glory. All their magnificence, all their excellence, all their preeminence, all of their dignity and grace. For it's been turned over to me, and I give it to whom I will. Therefore, if you will do homage to me and worship me, it shall all be yours. Matthew's version of this says, Satan said to him, These things all taken together I will give you, if you will prostrate yourself before me and do homage and worship me. 
Now, what Satan said in this last temptation should give you the creeps, folks. Have all the kingdoms of the earth been given over to Satan, and does he really have the power to give it to whomever he wills? Was Satan lying? If he was, then this wouldn't be a temptation. If I said to you, do this for me and I'll give you $10 billion, that wouldn't be much of a temptation if you've seen my bank account. Now, if I could fool you, that's something else. But those of you who know me personally would never fall for that. You know I don't have that kind of money and don't even have access to that kind of money and don't know anyone with access to that kind of money. Well, Jesus couldn't be deceived either. He knew who Satan was. And Satan knows that Jesus knows who he is. He knows he can't be deceived. So Satan wasn't attempting to lie here when he told him, All of this has been turned over to me, and I'll give it to whomever I will. We talked about that earlier. The earth is under satanic occupation. It seems, though, that in human history there have been one or two exceptions when Satan couldn't say that a land had been turned over to him and he could give it to whomever he willed. Because in those cases, the people of that land wouldn't let him. They actively and wholeheartedly opposed him and put their lives in God's hands and filtered all of their decisions through God's wisdom as best they knew how. Whenever you do a little digging into the spiritual background of the United States Founding Fathers, it explains so much about the prosperity of this nation that followed and the kind of integrity and bravery that won us a revolution and two world wars. From the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock to the Founding Fathers in 1776 and right on down the list, the majority of people who made up this country depended on God and put their trust in the Bible while following God's wisdom to the best of their ability. Today, the majority of the people who make up this country depend on government and trust in antidepressants while following their own lusts to the best of their ability. And the results are devastating to extremes, and yet people never seem to make the connection. After the massacre at Columbine High School, there was an email floating around that was dressed up as though it was a forwarded email from a high school girl named Melanie, who lost several friends in that shooting. It was addressed to God and said, Dear Lord, it's been said that you are everywhere. If that's true, then where were you when my friends were killed? Why weren't you at my school the day my closest friends were shot? And then at the top, there was a reply from God that said, Dear Melanie, I'm no longer allowed in your schools. You know, when I hear our current president publicly announce while laughing that the United States is no longer a Christian nation, it scares me. What really scares me is not that he said it, but that he's probably right. If we're no longer a Christian nation, then by default it means that we have turned it over to Satan and he gives it to whomever he wills. And lengthy campaigns, passionate politics, heated elections, and endless debates are all meaningless. It's been turned over to Satan and he gives it to whomever he wills. So Satan wasn't lying. He meant what he said. Satan says, worship me, and I'll give it all to you, because I have the power to do that. But there's a problem with that temptation. Didn't God the Father already promise Jesus that he would give it all to him anyway? So what's the temptation here? There's prophecies all throughout the Old Testament where it says God the Father is going to give Jesus Christ rule over the entire universe. So what is Satan's temptation exactly? Satan already knows he will eventually lose to Jesus Christ in the end. But that includes the cross. Satan's offering Jesus a shortcut. 
hey, you can do it your way, which is the cross, and then thousands of years of more human suffering before you finally come back and defeat me and take over the universe. Or, you can do it my way without the cross. You can rule over the universe now. End human suffering right now. Just prostrate yourself before me and worship me, and it shall all be yours. Then Jesus said to him, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it has been written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil departed from him, and behold, angels came and ministered to Jesus. Luke's version says Jesus replied to him, saying, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he left him temporarily and stood off of him until another more opportune time. When Satan attacked, Jesus quoted scripture every single time, and Satan would then have to change the subject. That's how you fight Satan. And when Jesus had had enough, he told Satan to get lost, and Satan did. You can do the same thing, tell him to get lost. You know, I spent a lot of time talking about the Bible's resume for Satan because I really wanted to hammer home the fact that he is the God of this world and not to be ignored. He is a real threat. But, as powerful and as evil as he is, he's not an evil parallel or counter-equal to Jesus Christ. Satan is a fallen angel. He's part of the creation. The angels were created by God. And even though Satan is the God of this world, if you're a Christian, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Ephesians chapter 6 lays out what it calls the armor of God. You want to study the tactics of the enemy? Read Ephesians chapter 6 and you'll know all about how Satan works. What he attacks, where he attacks, and what he attacks with, and how to defend yourself. And this concludes today's show, folks. Next time, we'll continue where we left off. John the Baptist is still screaming in the wilderness, while Jesus is now choosing his disciples. And then they'll all go over to a wedding in Cana, where Jesus' very first miracle is recorded. Until next time, folks, we're out of here.